Last week, in verses 22 through 35, we dealt with people's wrong motives in seeking Christ. We dealt with their longing and their desires to fill their own bellies, their own lusts, their own desires. They were not seeking Him because they believed on Him as Messiah or Savior. They were not seeking Him because they saw the signs in Him and believed in Him. They were not laboring after imperishable food, but they were laboring after perishable food. Those who seek the bread from heaven must labor for that which is eternal. They must hunger after it. Their souls must be athirst for the fountains of living water. For only they that hunger and thirst after righteousness shall be filled. This week we are continuing to look at the bread of life for the redeeming sustenance and eternal life that we know he possesses. We will not move, we will now move from motives of the heart to the very condition of the heart itself. Finding as we do reasons for rejoicing and hope. Finding also sobering realities that should be so dreadful to the sinner and the unbeliever that it causes them to flee to God in repentance and faith we will discover realities that stir us to make our calling and our election sure as second peter 1:10 tells us to second peter 1:10 admonishes us to do these things for in these last days the call of god is this that all men everywhere should repent acts 17:30 we do well to hear and heed the words here spoken by christ who offers us today meat that will endure to eternal life. So as we begin this week, I want to start in John 6. And we're going to read five verses. And we're going to talk about the bread of life. Starting at verse 35. And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. But I said unto you that ye also have seen and not believed. All that the Father giveth me shall come unto me, and him that cometh unto me I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will but to do the will of him that sent me and this is the father's will that has sent me that all which he hath given me out excuse me that of all which he hath given me I should lose nothing but should raise it up again at the last day and this is the will of him that sendeth me that everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Let's pray. Father God, I pray this morning for those that are in this room and those who are watching on Facebook, Lord, that you would stir our hearts, stir our minds to the truth that we are about to read, God.
Lord, that your son, the great I am, who took on flesh and died on a cross for us, is telling us to come and to eat, to come and to believe, to come unto him all who are labored and heavy laden and find rest that only he can give. God, I pray that today that we would eat, that we would dine, that we would sup at the Lord's table and understand what it is our Lord and our God is commanding us to hear. Lord, we give you all the glory and all the praise for what you are doing. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. I want to start right here with this statement that Jesus makes and we're going to break this statement down into just a few just a few words I am you see Jesus here begins one of seven metaphorical statements in the gospel of John where he says I am I am I am. This is the first of these seven metaphorical I am statements. The first one is this one. I am the bread of life, which is repeated three times in this chapter, where in verse 35, in verse 48, and in verse 51, he says, I am the bread of life. In John 8, verse 12, and in John 9, verse 5, he says, I am the light of the world. In John 10, verse 7 and verse 9, he says, I am the door of the sheep. In John 10, verse 11 and 14, he says, I am the good shepherd. In John eleven twenty-five, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. In John chapter 14, verse 6, he says, I am the way, the truth. And the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And John 15 and 1, he says, I am the true vine. Amen. This I am statement goes right along with John's whole purpose for writing this gospel. What was the purpose for writing this gospel? He says, Jesus did many more things. And more than we could write down, but I write these things unto you that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing in him, you would have life in his name. John chapter 20, verse 30, 31. Amen. There's a few more I am statements that are absolute I am statements. And I want to look at a few of these. In John chapter 6, verse 20, which we have already read, he says this. <clears throat> but he said to them, it is I. Do not be afraid. Remember when he was walking on the water and I told you, he said, it is I. He's telling them, it's me. And he's, he's, he's reversing the ego, I me, or I me, or e me, or I, well, however you pronounce it. I think it's I me. Ego I mean, which means I am. He's reversed it here. If you will flip, let me find my place again. 
Go with me to John 8, verse 24. John 8 and 24. He says, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. This is an absolute I am statement correlating with the I am of the Old Testament. Only the I am of the Old Testament could say you're going to die in your sins. There's, for all the people who say Jesus never claimed to be God, they are not reading the same book of John that I'm reading. Go with me, if you will, to uh, verse 28 of the same chapter. Chapter 8, verse 28. He says this. Uh, so Jesus said to them, when... When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing of my own authority, but I speak just as the Father taught me. Verse 58 of the same chapter. So jump down to verse 58. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. And then if you'll flip to John 18. Yeah, I can get my Bible to go the right direction. John 18, verse 5. John 18, verse 5. And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing there with him. You understand, even when he says, I am he, he's identifying with this Christ, this Messiah, this suffering servant of Isaiah. Amen. This is what's about to happen to him. Isaiah 53 is about to take place. Amen. It's about to come to pass that I was that he would be wounded for my transgressions, that he would be bruised for my iniquity, that the chastisement of my peace would be laid upon him. The I am. For just some clarification, this I am, this ego a me, okay, is very, very, or the ego I me is in keeping with Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. Isaiah 41, 4. Isaiah 43, 10. Isaiah 43, 25. Where Yahweh is the I Am. And in, in Exodus 3, this is where Moses says, Well, who shall I say sent me, Lord? You realize the word Lord is... In English is Lord, but in, in, in Hebrew is what? Yahweh. Yahweh looks at him and says, I am. Tell him I am sent you. You know, this I am is, is totally rooted in the fact that God is self-existent, self-sufficient, in need of nothing and no one. The Almighty One, the One that is above all things, who transcends life itself. 
You know, in our lives, we, we are born and we live and we have experiences that, that we move through in time and space. But God does not move through time and space. He is eternal. He's above, beyond time and space. Before time existed, God was. Before any matter ever existed, God was. Let your mind wrap around this. There will never be a time when God will not be. Eternal. Everlasting. Almighty. This is Yahweh, the self-existent one. Amen? The reality is... When he's saying, I am, he's telling you, I am. And I don't care what Kenneth Copeland says, you aren't. <laughs> God in the flesh. Yahweh in human flesh. In case you didn't get my reference there, Kenneth Copeland teaches that you can be God too. And that's not true. He said, and these are, quote, Kenneth Copeland said, every time I see I am in the Bible, I just say, I am too. And that's a quote. That is false teaching. You are not God. You will never be God. There will be never in the history of the universe will you ever become a God. It's impossible. You are a created being, therefore limited in every way. God is not limited in any way. Amen? You will never be that. Amen? Now, as we continue to read this, it definitely strikes a chord with us and makes us think back to John chapter 1. So I'm going to go back to the prologue and read the first three verses for you. Again, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. This is Jesus. Amen? Jesus is the I Am. Jesus here is identifying with this title. John is, uh, John is so careful to share it because this matches the purpose for which John is writing this gospel in the first place. Amen? John wrote this gospel that you would believe in Christ. Not only that you would believe in Him, but that you, like Thomas, would say, My Lord and my God. Jesus, if Jesus was not God... We have no hope of salvation. If Jesus is not the I am. If he's not king of kings and lord of lords. If he's not been given all power and all authority. You understand that phrase? He says all power in heaven and in earth is given unto me. Do you realize that statement? There is only one all-powerful being 
and it's God. This God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If it were not, then he could not have identified as the I am. He said, I am the bread of life. Jesus is the giver of life. John 5, 21. If you just flip back into John chapter 5 and look at verse 21, I'll show you where Jesus having this discussion, verse 21, for the Father, uh, for as the Father raiseth up the dead and quickeneth them, even so the Son quickeneth whom he wills. Now, if you read that in the ESV, it's going to say a little different and give you a little more clarity. John 5, 21 in the ESV says this. Now, if I can get there, I'll tell you. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whomever he wills. The Son gives life to whomever he wills. If you look at John 6, 27, which we just read last week. John 6 and 27 says this, Do not work for food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Jesus is the giver of eternal life. He's not only the bread of life that has been given to you, but he's also the giver of the bread of life. Why? Why is he the giver of the bread of life? Because he himself is life. Remember the I am statement we just read? I am the resurrection and the life. Amen? And then again in 14 he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus isn't just uh, possessing of life. He is life. He gives life to all things. Amen. John 1, in the beginning, was the Word? The Word was with God. The Word was God. All things were made by Him, and without Him, nothing was made that was made. Why? Because the life of the entire universe is held together by the Christ, the Son of the living God, who is Himself life. Amen. When He says, I am, this is what he's saying. Whoever comes and whoever believes, he says, shall not hunger, they shall not thirst. Again, I am going to reference Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, where it says, Blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled we're dealing with in this whole first verse here we're dealing with the motives of the heart but beyond that we're going to deal with the very heart itself and why it is we need God's help you see when it says whoever comes unto me will not hunger and whoever believes in me will not thirst what he's telling you is there's a prerequisite that must be in you 
There's a prerequisite to coming, and that's hungry. There's a prerequisite to believing, and that's thirsting. Those who come truly hunger for Him. Those who believe truly thirst for the waters of life. Something changes in the heart of a man to make them one moment all they want to do is live for this world, for their lusts, for their own pleasures, and then all of a sudden they're plunging headlong after Christ. Leon Morris in his commentary on this chapter and this verse particularly says, Here Jesus speaks of coming to him, which stresses the movement away from the old life with its beggary or beggarly famine and its, and its total inability to satisfy and to all that associates with all that association with Christ means. Did you catch all that? I'm going to read it again because I butchered it. Here Jesus speaks of coming to him, which stresses the movement away from the old life with its beggarly famine and its total inability to satisfy and into all that association with Christ means. This means I'm moving away from this life this world's passions, this lust of the flesh, and I'm moving towards Christ. Why? Because everything that this world has and offers will leave me as a beggar starving to death because it is totally insufficient to supply the need that rests and resides within every human being. We are all dead in our trespasses and sins before we know Christ. We are totally without hope. That's where we're at. And those that come to Christ must leave that behind. Jesus says as much. He says, unless you're willing to renounce all that you have and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. Amen? He says, unless a man denies himself, takes up his cross and follows me, he cannot be my disciple. Do you understand that no man will do this by his own free will, by himself, without God's help? It will never happen. Nobody ever turns to God because it sounds like a good idea. How is it that so many people could stand in the very presence of Christ like these men in this chapter? See the miracles. See the signs. And Jesus looks at them and says, you don't even believe. They saw it. With their own eyes. Surely all of us would be like, oh man, if I saw him raise the dead, if I, if, I, if I was Thomas and I put my finger in his hands and put my hand in his side, oh, surely I would believe. But I tell you, the story of the rich man and Lazarus tells a whole different story. 
The story of rich man and the Lazarus. The rich man was in hell and he said, send, send, uh, send Moses or one of the prophets to my family. Send Lazarus down there to tell them that they don't want to end up in this place. And Abraham's answer was they have Moses and the prophets. If they don't believe them, they will not believe even if they see the dead raised. The problem is seeing does not produce faith. Faith is a gift from God planted in the human heart that we would turn to God and believe. Faith, uh, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, right? That also has to be anointed and moved upon by the Spirit of God on anybody before they'll hear the words of God. Because there's been millions and millions and millions of people throughout the church age who have heard the gospel and rejected it. Simply hearing does not produce faith. God produces faith. God is the one who gives us the faith. How do we know that? This whole chapter is hinged upon this very fact that in salvation, God is absolutely sovereignly in control. Those who come this way, those who come hungry and thirsty, and truly longing for Christ. Those will be satisfied. They will find remedy for their lost and longing soul. And be sure that Jesus is inviting men to come and eat. To come and believe. There is never a point where Jesus is holding his hand out. Rejecting those who believe. It's not in scripture. Verse 36, notice what it says in verse 36. This is a very much a hinge in this portion of this. He said, but I say to you that you have seen me, yet you do not believe. They did not believe even though they have seen. John 20, verse 29 is where Thomas finally believes. He says, thou art you know, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said, you believe because you have seen and you've handled me. He said, but blessed are they who have not seen yet believe. You see, seeing does not equate to believing. Believing happens because God takes a lost and dead sinner and rips out their stony heart. And plunges within their chest a heart of flesh. A heart that can hear God. See God. Feel God. Understanding that seeing does not produce faith. Luke, if you would, turn with me to Luke chapter 16. Now I already talked about this, but... I just want you to know that that's where this rich man and Lazarus is, okay? Verse 19 through 31 of chapter 16. And here we see these words. <laughs> he said in verse 
uh, 31, he said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should be raised from the dead. Seeing is not always believing. For faith being a gift of God, we can turn to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. Or we can just read the whole thing. Turn with me to Ephesians 2. We're going to start at verse 1 and read to verse 10. Because there's much in here that we need to digest. Ephesians, if I can find Ephesians. I know it's in my Bible. I read it. Verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Somebody say... But God. And to say but God in the King James too. It says but God being rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace have you been saved. And raised up with him. And seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages. He might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace have you been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. For more on this, we could go to uh, uh, John, uh, John 1, 11 and 13, or 11 through 13. So flip back to John chapter 1. We're going to read this because we read this when we went through the prologue, and we certainly talked about this when we went through the prologue, but I want to go through it again, starting at verse 11. It says, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Being born again, coming to faith in Christ, always hinges upon God saving me. On God reaching me. We've turned it around in modern Christianity because we want to be a lot like the world and we've made the gospel so worldly that the gospel now is all about us getting back to Christ. But the gospel is not us getting to Christ. The gospel is Christ came and got us. That's the gospel. That he came, he died, he rose again so that he might call all those who believe to himself. That's the gospel. Now you and I don't know who all those are. But he does. He said I know my sheep. And they know my voice. 
We're about to get into this very deeply because verse 37 is a linchpin in the understanding of John about how this born again experience happens. Verse 37 cannot be overlooked. It cannot be explained away. We must take it as it says. Verse 37, all that the Father giveth me shall come to me. And he that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. Now, chances are in your Christian life you have only heard the last half of that verse. The last half of that verse is the most popular verse that people share all the time when they're sharing the gospel. And they'll say, all who come to me I will in no wise cast out. But they forget about the first half of this verse. They don't even quote it. Why? Because theologically, it doesn't make sense to them. Because theologically, there's a mystery in salvation. Yes, there is a human heart that responds to God. Yes, there is people who of their own will and, 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 and volition say, Yes, Lord, I believe. But before that can even happen, God has to do a work in their heart. Or it will never happen. How do we know that for sure? We can skip down just to verse 44 if you want and get ahead of ourselves where it says, no man, can, no man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draws him. And he repeats this again. And I will raise him up at the last day. Notice, he's still in context. What's the context? This is the will of God that I should lose nothing that the Father has given me, but raise it up at the last day. That's verse 38 that we're going to get to, right? The reality of what John is teaching, or what Jesus is teaching, and John is writing, what Jesus said, is this. God has to change our hearts. That's why we all pray this way. Lord, I pray that you would save my family. Change their heart, God. Let them believe. Help them, God. Why would we pray that way? Because we know ultimately it is God who saves. Amen. God has to do a work in their heart. If it does not happen, they won't be saved. Not one person ever went to heaven that God didn't first do a work in their heart. It's impossible impossible why why is this such an impossible thing I've got a few notes that I want to read on verse 37 here the ESV study Bible says this whoever comes to me I will never cast out implies that the people should never think maybe I'm not chosen by God and therefore maybe Jesus will reject me when I come to him Jesus promises to receive everyone who comes to him and trusts in him for salvation. Yet, a few verses later in verse 44, Jesus states that the paradox and corresponding truth that once people come to Jesus, they will realize that behind their willing decision to come to him and believe lies a mystery. An invisible work of the Father who is along, who all along was drawing them to Christ. This is 
absolutely what we see in the New Testament. This is absolutely what we see. And that's generally the response when you tell, oh, no, God has to do a work in your heart. And then they go, well, maybe I'm not chosen. Maybe I'm not one of the elect. We can't wrestle that question out because the reality is if you love God and you're following God and you trust God, then by golly, you're chosen. Because he will not reject anyone who comes to him in faith. He makes this abundantly clear. Amen? But I can tell you this. For, all, for far too long, I wrestled with the idea because I've seen a world full of people out here who hate God, who don't want anything to do with God. And I tried to defend them and go, oh God, maybe they're not elect. Maybe they are. I don't know. You don't know. God knows. Do you realize that no matter whether you fall on this argument, whether you're a staunch uh, uh, believer in free will and that people have to have to make this choice, or if you're a, or a, you know, a, a hyper-Calvinist who, who thinks it's all God, okay, there's a reality. Neither one of them people know who will say yes and who will say no. Nobody except God. And the reality is, if people who believe solely in free will will say, well, God doesn't really know until they decide, then what you're doing is you're basically trashing most of the Bible where it says God is all-knowing. God doesn't just know the possibilities of outcomes. God knows the outcome. God has written the outcome. He said, I've declared the end from the beginning. Why? Because I'm the creator and sustainer of all things. God is not up on some cloud somewhere, kind of halfway uh, controlling things and falling asleep. God is in control of everything. Amen? Amen? And if he wasn't, we should be totally afraid. And we would have no hope for salvation. Because if the slightest little thing can move God off of his course, then there's no way we can trust him to bring us to faith and salvation. But I'm here to tell you this morning that this I am from verse 35, there was nothing that the devil could do there was nothing that Rome could do. There was nothing that the Jews could do. There was nothing that Judas could do or Peter could do that would deter him from the task that he was set about doing. And he completed his father's work. And the father will complete his work. And he who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it. So when we hear these words, it should not go, oh no, I wonder if I really believe, or I wonder if I'm one of the elect, or I'm wondering if I'm one of the chosen. Ah, you believe, have faith. Trust Christ. Throw yourself on the mercy of Christ. I do, I do think that these words are very disturbing, especially for those who only have an outward appearance of faith. 
who have not truly trusted in Christ, it should cause them to tremble in fear and run to Christ. And for, the, for those of us who have faith in Christ, it should solidify our faith because he who began that good work. Notice that that's how that verse is read. He who began a good work in you. The good work that was began in every Christian was began by God, period. End of story. Amen. All that the Father gives me will come unto me. And whoever comes, that's what you need to realize. Whoever comes, whoever comes, whoever comes how? Whoever comes hungry, whoever comes thirsty, whoever comes longing for the waters of life, whoever has an ear, let him hear, let him come and drink of the water of life. Revelation chapter 20, verse 17, or 22, verse 17. Let him come. God won't reject those who come. Here's the point. Those who don't come are already rejected. Those who will not come are rejected because they will not come. Those who don't believe are rejected because they don't believe. Because they're not hungry. Because they're not thirsty. It's a hard statement. Notices. I better read some notes. I missed. I did a whole lot of preaching without notes right there. Okay, just let you know. Another note on this, chapter six, verse thirty-seven from the King James Study Bible this is a very good note. I I don't always read the notes out of these, but I thought this one was very good. Jesus affirms the twin themes of election. And perseverance of the saints prominent in topics prominent topics in John's gospel those predestined by God will come to Jesus and Jesus will persevere as uh, preserve his own no one who comes to Jesus apart from the father's drawing no one comes to Jesus apart from the father's drawing it's very important that we remember that this is not my words. This isn't even the words of John. This is the words of Jesus. No one comes to Christ apart from the drawing of the Father. So anyone who comes, he will not cast out. But we have to qualify this coming because these men came to Jesus with wrong motives. Remember that last week we talked about the wrong motives. And here again this week we're seeing it's not even the motives of their heart that are wrong. It's the heart itself. They don't see or believe. And it's because they are not his sheep. He makes this clear in chapter 10 verse 29 when he looks at them and he says, You don't believe because you're not of my sheepfold. It's a very challenging statement, ain't it? And and for those who go, oh no, God's being unfair. The reality is that the gospel has been proclaimed to all men. The gospel is proclaimed to all men. And therefore, all men are required to repent 
and believe. And the judgment, the, the penalty is not laid at God's feet. It is laid at their feet. Because they don't believe. Won't believe. Refuse to believe. You see, God is not willfully going, Oh, I don't want you, and I don't want you, and I don't want you, and I don't want you. Right? He's not doing that. We don't find that in the Bible. We do find that God would, that everyone would come to repentance. But we also understand that God has a will beyond what we see. And God knows who are His and who aren't His. That's a hard pill for us to swallow because when we talk about election, people get upset. People get beside themselves. And they go, oh no, this can't be in here. But it's right there. And if it's, you got King James, it's probably in red letters. Verse 37, verse 44, on and on through this whole chapter, we're going to be diving into this deep water that causes us self-reflection. And Jesus is not telling us this to make us despair. He's not telling this to you to make you despair. He's telling you so that once you understand that God is the one who started the work in you, it ought to make you convinced. That God will finish the work. Should it terrify those who don't believe? Absolutely. It should cause them to get on their face and repent and run to Christ and turn to Him because the reality is if they will, He will not reject them. That's what He says. Those who come to me, I will not reject. Amen. This should make unbelievers get on their face in repentance and, and cry out to God in faith. It should. It really should. Leon Morris says this. Oh, I didn't even finish that. Hold on. These themes continue in the Good Shepherd discourse, and he cites verse 28 and 29 of chapter 10 which I have already cited and in Jesus and in Jesus's final prayer in Gethsemane chapter 17 verse 6 uh, verse 9 verse 11 through 12 these same themes of those who the father gives me those who you've gave me I've kept I've not lost one of them here it is Jesus is the faithful shepherd He's the only bread that sustains. He's the, only, he's the only person that we can put our faith in that will receive in us the gift of eternal life. Leon Morris says this, the words stress the sovereignty of God, but, do not, but people do not come to Christ because it seems to them a good idea. Never does it seem a good idea to the natural man apart from a divine work in their souls. Why do men think that coming to Christ is not a good idea? Why? Why do people reject Christ? Why do they look at it and scoff? Why do they go, oh, this can't possibly be 
the answer. I mean, look, you don't, you don't, there's nothing I have to do. You mean, I don't have to earn it. I don't, have to, uh, I don't deserve it. So why am I getting it? They don't understand. Why? Because 1 Corinthians 1.18 says the message of the cross is foolishness to them who are perishing. It's a stumbling block to the Jew and foolishness to the Gentiles. Why? Because they cannot accept the things of the spirits. 1 Corinthians 2.14 They cannot they cannot understand the things of the spirit. Why? Because they are spiritually discerned and the fact that they can't understand them tells you that they are an Ephesians chapter 2 person that is dead in their trespasses and sins and they cannot discern the things of God. Jesus taught in parables and the disciples said, how come you talk in parables to them but then you tell us how, what they mean? He said, it's given unto you to know the meaning of these. Even in that, we see Jesus telling parables and saying that they wouldn't believe. That he's saying, I'm telling them in parables or else they would believe. That was Jesus' own words. Why? Because God is the author of life. God brings to eternal life all those he wills. And that's hard for us to grasp. Why? Why are they dead and do not seek God? Why? Why don't they accept it? Because they are dead and do not seek after God. And I cited Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, which we've already read. And I could go and cite uh, Romans 3, 10 through 18, he says, there's no one that seeks after God. There's no one good. No, not one. They're all like an empty grave. Uh, let's, let's just go read it so I don't butcher that whole thing. Romans chapter 3, starting at verse 10. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave, and, their tongue, and use, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursings and bitterness, and their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes, and there lies in the dead sinner. They have no fear of God. They have no care for God. They have no thought for God. Therefore, they do not understand the things of God. Without God's help. Notice that those people in Ephesians 2 were made alive in Christ. It says, if you read the King James, it says he quickened them. Amen? He quickened them. What's that mean? He made them alive. He gave them new birth. He brought them back to life. 
dead people don't come back to life of their own free will. They don't. It doesn't happen. It has to be God that does it. Amen? Ah, where am I at? Here we go. So those who truly come, he will never cast out. Now watch this. I want to I get to the good news in this, okay? Notice this, verse 38 and verse 39. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus is saying, this is the reason that those who come will never be cast out. Because I've come to do the Father's will. And then the obvious question is, well, what's the Father's will? Right? I've come to do the will of him who sent me. That's how it ends, right? Well, now you have to read verse 39 because he starts out, and this is the Father's will. Right? I want you to underline that in your mind. This is the Father's will. Everything I'm about to tell you is the will of the Father. Verse 39. And this is the will of the Father which has sent me, that all which he hath given me I should lose nothing, but raise it up again at the last day. And again he repeats himself. Verse 40. And this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life. And I will raise him up at the last day. You see, this portion that Jesus puts in here about election and, and about God, uh, the Father choosing and, and giving some people to the Son is not to make us go, Oh no, am I one of those people? It's given to us so that we understand that my salvation didn't come from me. That I can't take credit for it. That I can't be arrogant and say, well, look what I did. I'm smarter than you. I chose Christ. That's why Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 said, it's the gift of God, lest any man should boast. Because if our salvation was in any way dependent upon us, we'd brag about it. We'd go, oh, look what I did. I chose Christ. You ought to be smart like me and choose Christ. God calls all men everywhere to repent. The gospel has been given to all people everywhere. They all get to hear it. They all have a choice and a response that has to be made. Right? This thing about God putting a work in our heart is not there to make us go, Oh no, am I one of them? It's meant to give you hope because this I am who can walk on water, this I am who can feed the 5,000 with five loaves and two fish, this I am that later on will raise a little girl from the dead and, and raise his best friend from the dead who himself will raise from the dead. He's the one doing the work in your heart. 
And if he does the work, you can trust him that it will be finished and it will be accomplished and he will not fail in completing that mission. And even in this passage, what we must understand is that this passage is not creating exclusion. This passage, while it is telling you God has to do in a work in your heart, it also is telling you that anyone can come. Anyone who comes will not be cast out. Therefore, the words of Romans chapter 10 are still true. I know we don't like reading Romans 10, but I want to go there. Because sometimes I think people get confused about this, and I think we need to read it thoroughly. We're going to start at verse 9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Not you might be. You will be. So if I, if right here in verse 9, if I confess with my mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in my heart that God has raised him from the dead, I will be saved. Now watch this, verse 10. For with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Brother and sister, I don't want you to get this mixed up. Because while I believe wholeheartedly that God has to do a work in a human heart, I do not believe that this, these verses are meant to discourage you. They are meant to encourage you. They are meant to tell you that God has to do a work in your heart and then he offers anyone who will come, I will not cast out. My question this morning is not, oh, do you not believe? Or, oh, do you are you denying him? My question is, would you come? My question is, would you believe? That's the question of the gospel. The question of the gospel is not, oh, I don't know if he chose me. I don't know if, I don't know if I'm, not, I'm one of them elect people. The reality is, none of us know that. But if we hear the gospel and we believe and we respond and we come and we're hungry and we're thirsty and we're longing for those waters of life, he said, I will not cast you out. You see how that's hope and not a burden? But that's how the gospel has to be presented. I have to present you with this fact that you by yourself can do nothing to get to God. You have to have God's help. And the moment that you reach that precipice and you're thrown from the, from the pinnacle of that cliff and you're plunging into despair, 
That's when we hear these words. But any who come to me, I will in no wise cast out. And then we, like Peter, walking on the water, sinking in the Sea of Galilee, cry out, Lord, save me! And he will not turn us away. He will not deny. But he accepts all those who come to him. All those who come. All those who believe. All those who hear. All those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Amen. The bread of life is the only bread that can satisfy. It's the only bread that can endure to eternal life. So the question is, do you, have, do you hunger for Christ? Do you thirst for Him? Do you hear His voice? Do you look to the Son? And do you believe? The message we preach is this. Come unto Christ. And be satisfied. That's the gospel. All you who labor and are heavy laden, come unto me, and I will give you rest. He doesn't put a qualifier on there. He doesn't say, All you who believe, accept you, or accept you, or accept you, or accept you. You notice Jesus never says those things. So he's putting this qualifier in here to cause us to repent, to cause us to fall on his mercy, to cause us to fall on the sovereign hand of God who alone can save us. That's why it's there. Amen? So if you're looking for this water to get shallower next week, I'm sorry, it's probably getting deeper next week. But all the more should it cause us to go, God, I thank you that where I was in that dead and lifeless state, in the, in the muck and the mire that I could not get out of, you came and you set me free. Amen? Because that's the gospel. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you and praise you for your grace and your mercy, God. Lord, we thank you that your word is such good bread, that it nourishes our very soul. Lord Jesus, we know that your words are the words of life. Nobody else has them. We, like Peter, Lord, want to come and dine. Later in this chapter, Lord, you, 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 you tell the Pharisees that he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood will have eternal life. Lord, I pray that you help us not turn away from this table when the meat that sits upon it looks like radishes or whatever other vegetable we don't like eating. But help us to devour even the parts that are not pleasant to swallow pray God that you would help us to discern and to understand teach us your word 
and help us to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ who died for the sins of not just us, but for the sins of the whole world, that all who believe in him might have eternal life. Lord, we thank you. We ask you to bless the fellowship and the food that we're about to have to the nourishment of our body and our bodies for your service. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.